two years ago this very day, some of you may remember this, sometime before 9.30 in the morning, 20-year-old Adam Lanza shot his mother at their home in Newtown, Connecticut. Lanza then drove to Sandy Hook Elementary School, shot his way through a glass panel next to the locked front entrance doors of the school, and then entered a first-grade classroom where he opened fire, killing 15 of the children in the classroom. Before, he, before it was over, Lanza would shoot and kill 20 children, 8 boys, 12 girls, all of them between 6 and 7 years of age, along with 6 staff members and himself as well. Had it happened at any other time of the year, it would, of course, have been tragic, but the fact that it happened at Christmas time only amplified the horrific nature of the event. Why Christmas? Of all times of the year, why Christmas when children should be squealing with delight instead of screaming in terror? Why Christmas? I think that's what most of us thought at the time. Why of all times of the year Christmas? I think it's possible that our surprise that such a tragedy would accompany Christmas says something about our understanding of Christmas and the events that surrounded the first Christmas. And if you have a Bible... I'd like for you to turn with me in it to Matthew chapter 2. And I think, you're gonna, I think some of you are going to see a, a passage of Scripture that perhaps you've never been uh, familiar with as it relates to the narratives of Jesus' birth. I think you'd be surprised to find that the tragedy that happened in Newtown, in Newtown Connecticut, wasn't the first tragedy surrounding Christmas that affected children. We began a new series last week. Some of you may be uh, familiar with that. We started a new series called A Shockingly Ominous Christmas. And the idea behind the series is that all of the warmth and the tenderness and the sentiment that naturally surrounds the Christmas season as we celebrate it seems starkly at odds with the mood, the ominous mood, of some of the biblical accounts of the first Christmas. And I think it's important that we see the contrast between the sentiment in our culture about Christmas and some of the ominous moods Uh, some of the ominous mood of some of the birth narratives. I think it's important that we see that contrast to understand in a more profound way the significance and the meaning uh, of Christmas. And I think what you'll see in this particular passage today is that the birth of Christ, the meaning of Christmas, some of the conflicts surrounding the first Christmas has extremely important and even sobering implications for our lives uh, today. Reading from Matthew chapter 2 from verse 13, again, this is a passage that you almost never see read at Christmas, and I think you will understand why uh, when, we, when, we, when we read it. Let's start at verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So... He got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and they left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled. Mark this. Would you, would you just mark this where it says this? And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. 
Then what was said, would you mark this as well? Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and they went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in a town called Nazareth. And so was fulfilled, would you mark this? So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Allow me to make one quick observation that has nothing to do with everything else that I want to talk about today, if, you, if you'd let me make this observation, because I think it's worth noting. One of the things that you see in this text, I asked you to mark it three different times. One of the things in this text You see this uh, over and over, really, throughout the book of Matthew. But as it relates to the birth narratives, you see this, these references to Old Testament prophets, things that they had said long before Jesus uh, was ever born. Now, Matthew's very careful to point these out for us here and in other uh, passages related to Jesus' birth because he wants to demonstrate that each of these prophecies that were made hundreds of years earlier have been precisely fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ. Now that's very important because this is one of the things that makes Jesus different from every other religious leader in human history. There, there are no prophecies for telling the details about the birth of any other religious leader in human history. Now think about that. No prophecies alerted the world to the coming of Muhammad, the founder of Islam. No prophecies foretold the coming of Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism. No prophecies, no prophecies announced the coming of Siddhartha Gautama, who was the founder of Buddhism, or any of the, any of the other world's uh, religions. Yet, the Old Testament pinpointed numerous details about the birth and the life and the death and even the resurrection of Jesus to validate his claim to be the Messiah of the world. And it came to pass exactly as those had been predicted. So I want you to understand, I want you to think about that. This is one of the things that distinguishes Jesus. When you consider other world religions, when you think about the leaders of those religions, ask yourself, why were their births not prophesied in the same way that Jesus was? And what does that say about their claims as religious leaders? Okay, let's get to what I want to talk about this morning. You guys, can I just say something? You guys right now seem like that you are a million miles away from me, like somewhere in your head. You're thinking about shopping. You're thinking about something else. So here's what I'd like for you to do. I'd just like to, well, I'm going to ask you, if you would, just stand up with me for just a moment. Stand up. All right, and I want you to shake out whatever you got to shake out to get rid of wherever you are in your head, and I just want you to be fully present for the next few moments, okay? In fact, I may just have you stand all the way through the sermon, and that'll make you fully present. Okay, you can be seated. All right, now just hang with me. Just be fully present for the next few minutes, okay? Next few minutes, and then you and I know that it's not really a few minutes. It's more than a few minutes, but we'll say a few minutes. So just hang with me. Be responsive, okay? Sure. Are you with me? Okay, good. Now, that's what, that's what I want to hear. Okay. Uh, 
As you no doubt, no doubt noticed in this particular passage, the main character in this account is, is Herod. He was called Herod the Great. Uh, he was known as the king of Judah, not to the Jews. They resented him. They saw him as an interloper. They didn't see him as a rightful heir to the throne of David. He wasn't really the rightful heir. He wasn't really the king of Judah, but he was appointed the king of Judah by the Roman emperors who had appointed him back in about 40 B.C. Herod's violent attitude toward Jesus is the reason for everything that happens in this passage. And here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to know about Herod to understand this passage. He was savagely brutal. Savagely brutal. When he came to power, the very first thing that he did was that he killed every family member associated with the former dynasty that was in power before him. At one point in his, uh, in his reign, he executed half of the Sanhedrin, which was uh, the 70 priests and elders that basically constituted the religious supreme court in Israel because they were causing him trouble. Just executed half of them. Another time, in a fit of rage, he ordered 300 of the court nobles to be killed. Another time in his leadership, he executed his wife uh, because he didn't trust her. Then he executed her mother as well. And then he had three of his sons executed because he didn't trust them. When he was dying, he assembled in a central building in Jerusalem. He assembled dozens and dozens of noblemen from the country, and he had them brought there, and he had them held under guard in order that the minute that he died, they all be executed. He was as savagely brutal in his death as he was uh, in his life, which is why he callously ordered every baby boy born in Bethlehem under two years of age to be killed. This is a very dark passage, and I think you can see why this passage is not normally read at Christmas time. It doesn't seem to fit all of the tenderness and all of the sentiment of the Christmas season as our culture has come to celebrate it. And yet, because it's in the Bible, it's, it's clear that God wanted us to understand something about the meaning of Christmas, about Christianity, about the coming of the Messiah that we wouldn't have understood uh, without this passage of Scripture. And so I want to show you a few things from this passage that are really critically important for us to get if we're going to understand the meaning of Christmas, the full meaning of Christmas, the real, you know, what, what do they say, the real reason for the season or whatever. I want you to understand, I want you to have a balanced perspective of this. We always hear the tenderness and the sentiment, and there is that. That's real. I'm not trying to ruin that. But I also want you to understand the momentousness and the ominous mood that came with the first Christmas. In fact, here's the first thing in this account that I want you to understand. It teaches us this about the birth of Christ. First thing is this, that the birth of Christ meant war to the ruling powers. The birth of Christ meant war to the ruling powers. Now, I know I talked about this a great deal last week, so I'm not going to spend as much time on it uh, today. But uh, I want you to notice again that Jesus' birth didn't spark, it actually didn't spark warm, uh, tender family reunions in Israel. In fact, quite the opposite. If you look back up in the text, back to the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, you will see that it actually sparked quite the opposite. 
After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, this is what prompts this whole chapter. After he was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, those are the wise men that from the east, came to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. And if you read on, the text says that all of Jerusalem was disturbed because of the birth of this Messiah. Now, I don't know if you saw it in there. I don't know if you paid close enough attention. But if you noticed that the birth of Jesus proclaimed that he was the rightful king uh, over the Jews. That's what the Magi were wanting to know. Where is he that was born the king of the Jews? Which didn't go over well with the sitting king. And so Herod orders the, the wanton slaughter of babies in Bethlehem just to make sure that he gets the one that is threatening his own power. Jesus' birth was so momentous and so significant that it meant war to the ruling earthly powers. And I think it would be important to say here also, not just the earthly ruling powers. Also, it meant war to the unseen spiritual powers of darkness, as Ephesians chapter 2 describes them. Herod didn't know it. But it was those unseen spiritual powers that prompted his action. His decision to try to kill Jesus as well as all of the babies born in Bethlehem in the vicinity who are under two years of age or older. As soon as Jesus was born, the very moment that he was born, Satan began trying to destroy him. Jesus' family was on the run from the very beginning. We read that in chapter 2. Satan tries to... As soon as Jesus begins his ministry, Satan tries to destroy him in the desert temptation. Some of you will remember this. I mean, he, he takes Jesus up to the top of the temple, and, he, and he, says, he says, throw yourself down. In other words, he was trying to get Jesus to essentially perform an act of suicide. Just throw yourself down. Just try to kill him there. And then he uses one of Jesus' disciples later in Jesus' ministry. Judas was his name, to hand Jesus over to the Romans. And then, of course, at the cross, Satan performed what he thought at the time and what appeared to be, for at least three days, to be one of Satan's greatest achievements. Now, I mention all of this to make the point is I want you to understand that Christ's coming meant war to the ruling powers. This is what Jesus meant. We saw it last week. This is what Jesus meant when he said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Okay? And you have to... The question that some of you might be asking yourself is why? Why did it mean war to the ruling powers? And the answer is because, again, we, we said this last week, that Jesus was born to stake out an enormous claim. He came to stake out every inch of the physical universe and every inch of the spiritual universe. All of the nations are mine, Jesus said. His birth proclaimed this. All of the nations are mine. All of the wealth of the earth is mine, Jesus said. All of the power on the earth is mine. All of the glory is mine. And that meant war to the powers that be. Now that has a very significant implication for you and for me. And that leads to my second point. Here it is. If you are a follower of Christ... Because his birth meant war to the ruling earthly powers. If you are a follower of Christ, you will be persecuted. Now, 
If you are a follower of Christ, you will be persecuted. Now, that's a very sobering thought, isn't it? And some of you are like, I, man, Jeff is really, this morning, like channeling his inner Scrooge. I think I'm going to come back after Christmas or something. It's not that. I'm not trying to ruin Christmas for you. I'm not, not trying to do anything like that. I'm not trying to take away the tenderness in the sentiment. But I'm also trying to make sure that you understand the real meaning of Christmas. Because I think you have to face the reality of all of that. And you need to see that while Herod's violent reaction in this passage is against Jesus, you've got to understand that everyone associated with, with Jesus was affected by Herod's hatred for him. Everyone. Members of Jesus' family, they, become, they became refugees, not just Jesus. Like they all became refugees. Everyone associated with Jesus becomes engulfed in the hostility of the world's structures hatred for Jesus. And what that means is that if you're associated with Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, that you're going to experience that persecution as well. And the Bible says that categorically. It says it in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Put it up here on the screen so you can see it. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, not only am I not trying to ruin Christmas for you, and not only am I not trying to take away the, the tenderness and the sentiment of Christmas for you, I, I'm also not trying to create a persecution complex in anybody. But, but again, if, if we're really going to understand the significance of the birth of Christ, you've got to look at all of the birth narratives, not just the ones that seem tender and, and sentimental. And when you look at all of the birth narratives, on the one hand, what you see is that in some of those narratives, you find people who are attracted to Jesus, like the wise men and the shepherds. The, these people are attracted to Jesus. But on the other hand, what you find as well is that you find that there are people who are absolutely repulsed by Jesus, and they were out to kill him. And what you have to understand, let me say it this way, so you've got, let me say it again. You've got, you got people that are attracted to Jesus and you've got people that want to kill him and that are repulsed by him. And what you have to understand at a, at a, much, at a much lower level, uh, we should all be experiencing the same thing as followers of Christ. Every one of us. In other words, if you're one of those people that is always getting persecuted over your faith in Christ, something's wrong. But in addition, if you're never getting persecuted, something's wrong. It's like if you're always getting persecuted, something's wrong. But if you're never getting persecuted, something's wrong. I had a, back in a church I pastored a long time ago. Uh, I, knew, I knew a woman in the church. I was younger at the time, so I, probably, I, wasn't gonna, I wasn't as bold as maybe as I would be now. Uh, but this woman came up to me one time, and I knew her, and she, we were talking. Maybe I was preaching about something related to this. I don't remember. But she came up, and she said, she said, I want you to know something. She said, I speak up for Jesus, and I just tell people the truth. And yeah, I'm always being persecuted by people, but it's for Jesus' sake. And I didn't say it, but what I was really thinking in my head was, no, really, you're just a jerk. You're just mean. You're just a mean, rude person. She, she was. She was very mean. Everybody knew it. She was a very mean lady. See, Jesus wasn't always being persecuted. 
wasn't always being persecuted. I mean, there were people that, that were incredibly attracted to Jesus. And so if on the one hand, if you're always being persecuted, it probably means that you're rude and self-righteous and you're insensitive to people. But on the other hand, if you are never persecuted, it either means that you are so lukewarm in your imitation of Jesus that no one considers you remarkable. Or it could also mean that you're such a coward in never opening your mouth that nobody knows why you are remarkable. Jesus wasn't always liked. Uh, He was also persecuted. And the birth narratives, when you take them as, as a whole, show that he attracts some and he repels others and so should you. And if you're not, if you're not attracting some, and if you're not repelling some, you're probably not living like him. Now, I know that's, again, I know that's a very sobering thought. So I, you know, I want to leave you with, with one last thing that I want to show you that after the darkness of the first two points, I, I hope will kind of cheer you up some as you leave today. Um, I want to give you the last principle this morning from this passage that I want to show you. And, and I, want to, I want to explain it as I close, but let me just give it to you first. Here it is. Here's the principle. God uses the despised of the world to convey his message to the world. God uses the despised of the world to convey his message to the world. Now let me explain what I mean. When Joseph and Mary returned to Israel from Egypt, I don't know if you noticed uh, what happened. Did you notice? They didn't want to go to Nazareth. Did you notice that? They didn't want to go there. They were forced to go there out of fear for the child's safety, but they didn't want to go back to Nazareth. And, And the reason for that is that Galilee and Nazareth was a place filled with Gentiles and barbarians. Evidently, it was a hick place. It was like podunk um, Podunkville, you know, and there's a story in John chapter one when there are these people uh, that go to a guy by the name of Nathaniel, and they say, "We found the Messiah, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth." And you can almost hear the laughter in Nathaniel's voice and the scoffing in his voice in his response. He says, "He says Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth?" It'd be like saying, "Kentucky." Can anything good come out of Kentucky? That's what it would kind of be like saying. The culture in which we live insists that if anybody has the answers, they have to come from certain places, and they have to, come, they have, to have certain uh, credentials. Okay? They have to have certain credentials, and they have to look a certain way, and they have to have gone to certain schools. So they have to, if anybody has the truth, it has to come from Harvard. It has to come from Dartmouth. It has to come from Oxford. It has to come from Hollywood. It has to come from New York. But it couldn't possibly come from flyover country, right? Nothing ever comes out of places like, you know, Evansville, Indiana, let's say. But if there's one thing that comes through in every bit of the Christmas story, it's that if you are a smart, sophisticated person, 
And if you insist that only smart, sophisticated people have the truth, you're probably not going to be much of a Christian or maybe even not a Christian at all until you get over that. Now look, I want you to understand, there are smart, sophisticated people who have truth. The gospel, Christianity, is not anti-intellectual at all. But it's just, not, it's just that not, it's not only smart, sophisticated people who have the truth. Jesus Christ, the gospel, Christmas, turns the world's idea of success upside down completely. All during Jesus' life, the disciples kept saying to him, they kept saying, Jesus, when are you going to take power? When are you going to save the world? And Jesus keeps saying, I'm going to lose power to save the world. And they keep asking him, when are you going to ascend your throne and, and, and take the glory for yourself that you deserve? And Jesus keeps saying, he keeps saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm going to descend. I'm not going to ascend. I'm going to descend. And I'm going to receive glory. I'm not going to take it. I'm going to receive glory from the Father. Everything about the Christmas narrative says that when Jesus Christ comes into your world and when he comes into your life, he's going to do so in a way that you wouldn't think that he would. He will humble you. He will. He will humble you. He will come not only to bring peace, but he will also come to bring a war. And he will come not only simply as a savior, but he will insist on being a king as well. But, he will be a king that will change Everything you ever thought that you knew and understood about power. He will be a king that so loves his people that he will die for them on a cross with a sign above him that reads, King of the Jews. He wasn't just the king of the Jews. He was the king of the world. He was your king. He was my king. And he turns everything you think you know about power and about life upside down. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Our Lord Jesus Christ, we are humbled as we come to a passage like this. Lord, we... uh, We come to you too cavalierly. We speak of your birth in such tender and sentimental ways. And that's true. That's all true. That's important. That's good. But we forget that your birth meant something more than tenderness and more than sentiment. It meant war. And the implications of your birth, because it was so momentous and so significant, the implications of that, that we will experience the same persecution that you experienced. And that's sobering to us. Lord, give us grace, give us mercy in the days ahead that as we face persecution that may come for our faith in you, Lord Jesus Christ, pray that you would give us the courage to face that. Pray that you would give us the conviction of our belief in you that we would be willing to endure whatever persecution comes our way. But Lord, in addition to that, 
we pray that there would be a sense about us that we are attractive to people as well. That our lives so resemble yours that there would be people who would want to know why we're so remarkable. And I pray that you would give us the courage to speak about that and to give you the glory in that. That it's not me, but it's Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ living in me. If you sense anything good about me, it's Jesus, it's not me. Give us that courage, Lord, to speak boldly for you. And so, Lord, we worship you this, this morning, knowing that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Born a child in a manger to save the world. It's in your name that we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.